By the way, my name is David Mills, and uh, in case you're in doubt, I am the pastor of Beach Haven Baptist Church. I've been out for a couple of Sundays and three total weeks, uh, just returned from Guatemala, and we had a marvelous time, and this time last Sunday, I was uh, preaching to um, a large group of um, uh, Takumuko mom uh, uh, Christians and churches and a number of lost people that came and uh, preached the gospel and extended the invitation, and at least 10 indicated that they received Christ as Savior uh, then. We were very grateful for that. We didn't factor that into the number Tommy gave because it wasn't quite clear uh, that they responded as I had asked them to. Actually, the number was double that, but uh, the 10 stood to the very end. I don't think they've got the same kind of invitation tradition that we do here, but it was a uh, great, great movement of God there. It was wonderful. The previous Sunday to that, um, this uh, time, um, uh, well, actually, they're seven hours ahead, I was in the Garden of Gethsemane and able to preach there as well and saw about three olive trees that were witnesses to the betrayal of Jesus and his tears in the uh, garden. It was quite an honor to preach there where our Lord cried out, not my will, but thy will be done. One of the things I greatly appreciate and have appreciated for many years is how my church, when I was uh, a new convert in high school, taught me the word of God, how they explained the Bible. And one of the things that my pastor and our teachers did, our lay teachers, most of them lay teachers, by the way, um, the, one of the things they did is that they taught the truth by contrast. They were willing to plant cucumbers and onions and tomatoes in the garden of my soul, but they were also willing to pick weeds and kill bugs as well. And it is silly not to do that. Um, there are a large number of alternatives out in the world that uh, compete for the human soul. And we must never, ever be so optimistic that we think if we just teach the truth that people will get it. A ministry that is always positive and smiling and uplifting is a ministry where the people are in decline, declension, and downgrade. That's what happens. And Paul knew that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And so he went negative. He did. An awful lot of the pastoral epistles are negative. And he states uh, a number of things that lead us to that conclusion in 1 Timothy uh, the first chapter. I want you to open there and read with me. We'll read the entire text through the balance of the message today. But I want to point out a couple of things here in the text that, uh, and, and want to draw your attention to them. Timothy was uh, a bit timid. Timothy was so timid, he had a terrible problem with anxiety, and it messed up his digestive system, according to chapter 5. That's how timid Timothy was, but he was faithful, and he did what God wanted him to do, and he needed the power and the help of God because in 1 Timothy, Paul indicates he's got to go to battle, he's got to go to war, he's got to go negative in the text. Now, I'm always nervous about preaching to any congregation the need to go negative at times, at appropriate times, because we all know a few certain personalities that have more in common with an atomic bomb than Jesus Christ. We know that. And I don't want to set them aflame. Uh, they, they don't need any help with that. I, I understand that. But that's not the dominant problem in congregations today. I, I've watched a serious transition take place to where Christians have lost their nerve to communicate accurately the truth of God and to challenge erroneous ideas. And what you have to understand 
is that the stakes are very high. Whether or not we go to heaven or miss hell depends on the truth that we embrace. These are serious stakes. There is one famous pastor in the nation who has said a number of times that his ministry is not to point out error. And I would say that he's not called to the ministry. Because there are automatically passages of Moses' writings and the prophets and the Psalms and most of what Jesus said that he could never preach. One-third of the Gospels, of the words from Jesus, are about hell and God's fury and wrath and sin. And so if you can't preach that, you know what you're left to. You're left to inventing your own message. And quite frankly, I think there are many that, that do that. Now, I, I do, I do uh, understand that um, uh, preachers need to be careful not only to pull weeds and kill bugs in the garden of people's souls, they do need to plant tomatoes and cucumbers and onions. I understand that. And we do a lot of that around here. We, we certainly do. But Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, does kill some bugs and he does pull some weeds out of the garden of Timothy's soul and, by extension, the church of Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring. Look with me in chapter 1, verse number 3. Uh, he says here, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In other words, get intense, get fearsome, get authoritative, and tell them to stop teaching doctrines contrary to the word of God. The word charge here is a military word, what a commander would do when he would order troops. And that's the role Timothy was to take as the pastor of this church when he expounded the scripture. It reminds me uh, that ministers in this day are not called to be mild-mannered men speaking to mild-mannered congregations, exhorting them to be more mild-mannered. Absolutely not. That's not a part of our call. Now, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Um, verse 3 was the first part of this passage. Verse 18 says something very similar, and so you have bookends. They're not identical bookends, but their content is the same. Verse 18, this charge, and that's the word he used in chapter 1, verse 3, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may, what? Wage the good warfare that you may wage the good warfare. So uh, preach and teach the word as if you're an authoritative commander. Now, you don't do that with your own opinion as a pastor, but you do with the Bible. You preach and teach the Bible with authority. And, and then, Timothy, I want, in other words, Timothy, I want you to wage the good warfare. I want you to preach that uh, way. So there are times when, at appropriate times, when we've got to go negative. Jude would say, I wanted, in Jude 3, I wanted you to write you about our common salvation, brethren, but uh, I found it necessary to urge you to contend earnestly for the faith. That's a wrestling term, not wrestling, but wrestling term uh, that described what you would do in ancient Greco-Roman wrestling. Contend earnestly, earnestly wrestle for 
the faith. Um, some Judaizers came from Jerusalem uh, to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were in Acts 15, and they taught that they had to keep the law to be saved. And the Bible says in Acts 15 too that there was no small dissension among them. That's a very strong and explosive term. I mean, Paul and Barnabas came apart over the teaching of a false gospel. And then in Galatians chapter 1, verse number 8, Paul has to chastise the Galatians intensely and severely in chapter 1 and verse number 8 when they begin to embrace another gospel. That's just a few pages back. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Probably the harshest term in the entire New Testament. There's an intensity about it. Anyone preaches another gospel, even if it's an angel or someone sent by us or us, let him go to hell. And then verse 9, as we've said before, so now I say to you, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. There are appropriate times where with a Christ-like spirit, it's important to go negative. Well, when happens to be that time? Well, there, there's some ways that we can do this and help you with this. And I want to give you five ways real quickly, then get into the text of the message. I want to have us as a congregation and build us to where our Sunday nights and Wednesday nights are as big as our Sunday mornings. I had that when I was a kid and newly converted. But I have been terribly, terribly disappointed now since 1983 to discover that churches all over the South have much weaker and smaller attendance on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights than they do Sunday mornings. And beloved, it should not be. It should not be. Now listen, if you're exactly like Jesus, then you go ahead and miss Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. If you are perfect, you miss Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. But if you're like me, and you need instruction from the Word and fellowship of the people and more direction with life, I want to encourage you to do this. Discipleship studies on Sunday and Wednesday night, which we will crank up back again in August. Uh, or there's Tuesday morning uh, ladies' Bible study you can be a part of. And then, not only that, we need to start some new Sunday school classes as well. That is a great predictor of growth. Then take and review sermon notes. You've got before you today in the pews and in front of you uh, some... Um, uh, uh, constructed and, and, uh, and prepared uh, uh, pieces of paper that you can use to take and review sermon notes. Have family devotions. Use the sermon notes. That may help if you think that it's worth uh, presenting to your family. And then June 25th through 28th, Lifeway has given us, our uh, publishing house, Baptist Publishing House, has given us that week, June 25th through 28th, to go to the local Lifeway store with a coupon we'll give you in a couple weeks and to pick up a free Bible and to give it away to someone who needs a Bible. And our week at Beach Haven is June 25th through 28th. If we'll observe these things, then we will have what we need to counter erroneous teaching. Now, when is it that I may find it necessary to go negative? Well, first, when you see a misuse of the Scripture. Now, that's verses 1 through 11. As I uh, said to you before, uh, we were in Israel, and I had the opportunity the first time I taught to go to Mount Carmel and to teach from there the story of Elijah calling down fire on Mount Carmel. I didn't attempt to do so, but our guide was a tremendous guide. Our guide uh, teaches at the Hebrew University there, and he is an archaeologist. 
and he does the larger groups of um, well-known pastors in the United States who bring groups of 250 or more to Israel. And he was um, leading a particular group for the first time, and he said, I'll never do this again, but a uh, particular group uh, led by one of the Joy Boys on television, uh, the kind of fellows that slap people on the head and claim to perform miracles and all. And he said, I will never lead that, lead that group again because the spectacle that that group made there really turned me off from Christ. Now, since then, he's come to Jesus. But he was considering the claims of Christ because uh, Max Lucado and Chuck Swindoll and Jack Graham and, and um, Todd Houston, who's preached here before, uh, had been witnessing to him and sharing the gospel with him. But he, he got turned off from the gospel because of this particular group. He said the gymnastics and gyrations they pulled on Mount Carmel were embarrassing. Now, you know the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. Uh, he challenged 400 prophets of Baal and said, let's see who the real God is. You uh, put up an altar and place a sacrifice there and call on Baal to answer by fire and burn up the sacrifice. Well, they did that from morning to evening. And Elijah mocked them some in 1 Kings chapter 18. And then he said, um, well, let me do it now. And so he poured water all over the sacrifices. He did it three times, in, in fact. Uh, built his own altar, slayed his own sacrifice, and covered it all up with water. And he prayed what amounts to a 17-second prayer, and fire fell and consumed it all and licked up the water and made the entire place dry in 1 Kings chapter 18. Edo, our guide, said, what happened with that particular group is they spent three hours, this so-called Christian group, spent three hours on Mount Carmel calling down fire from heaven. And nothing happened except a sweet Jewish friend was turned off from the gospel. I'm glad they didn't read Isaiah 20 where God told Isaiah to strip down naked and preach. I'm glad they didn't do that on Mount Carmel. But you see, that happened one time. That, that's not normative. That didn't happen from Genesis to Revelation, like love and forgiveness, preaching the gospel, building families. Those things repeatedly happen in the Scripture. That Mount Carmel experience happened one, once. It describes what happened. We're never commanded to do that, but some people don't know the difference. And what's ironic is that these Christians at the end of their gyrations and gymnastics on top of Mount Carmel had more in common with the prophets of Baal than they did the prophet of Elijah. Ladies and gentlemen, that kind of silliness and foolishness is witnessed all over the United States. And there are people that watch television and watch these joy boys and some of the others, and they have the remote control in their hand. And they go back and forth between that and professional wrestling. And they ask the same question about both. Is that real? Well, the professional wrestling is. <laughs> but you, you know something? If, if you were challenged at that point, some of you, if you were challenged at that point, you wouldn't have an answer. You wouldn't know what to do. And then if you did, you'd come across as too harsh. And you don't want to do that. That's why you need to learn how to handle challenges like that. That's why everyone who names the name of Christ needs to be here not only Sunday mornings, but Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, immersed with a face plant in the Bible every opportunity that you get. Now, this is a misuse of Scripture that I'm talking about here, and there are several ways that it was misused. Paul saw this in verse number, verse number 4 with additions. 
He said, do not give heed to fables or endless genealogies. We're not exactly sure what the fables were. Uh, The genealogies were probably Old Testament genealogies, but they would hypothesize different spiritual lessons from the fables and genealogies that were in addition to what the Scripture actually taught. May I say to you, some of you that are very committed to reading, you need to be real careful. Be careful of reading too many books by one Christian author. Be very, very careful of giving more attention to human books, even Christian books, than the Bible. You need to be able to open the Bible yourself and go to God and look to God yourself without the help of a human author. Now, I, 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 like, I like human authors, got lots of books, continue to purchase some. I, um, I bought one new book just about every week since 1983. I believe in doing that. But what I've got to say to you is there is no substitute for the Bible. You need to be able to find God and His will by looking only to the Word of God. How do I do that? That's why we meet Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And so you have to be careful of additions. Then, misguided purpose, verses 5 and 6. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and a sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Uh, the, The purpose of the Scripture is not to repeat Mount Carmel, and all the gyrations and gymnastics that some may want to engage in. The purpose of the Scripture is not even, not even to give ourselves personal therapy, although the Scripture is very therapeutic. The purpose is this, what? Is love. Love for God and love for others, <coughs> and that from a pure heart. In other words, you get into the Word of God and it purifies your soul. Jesus said in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the Word that I spoke to you. And then, from a good conscience. In other words, you have a clear conscience and then that way you're able to love God and exalt Him. Of course, you know what a conscience is. A conscience goes active when you're in private and it will say to you, somebody's watching you. That's what a conscience is. And when you have a clear conscience and you've gotten it clean before God, you're able to love God and love other people. If it's, if it's defiled, if it's weakened, if it's filthy, a filthy conscience, you're going to have a hard time loving anybody. You're going to be thinking just about yourself. And then from a sincere faith, that means a faith with no doubting. And some have struggled with doubts for years and years and years because they simply refuse to come on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. And some having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. So they don't know what they're talking about, and so they're talking in a way that is empty and vain. And so Paul saw a misuse of Scripture in misguided purpose. But then in unqualified teachers, verse 7. Now, when somebody is misguided in this way, they always want to say something. They always want a microphone. They always want a crowd. And Paul notices that in verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law. They, they want to teach the Bible, although they're terribly, terribly misguided. In other words, you've got to understand, just because someone wants to teach doesn't mean they're qualified to do so. In fact, I think there are many that are simply disqualified. And then there's a wrong use of the law. Look at verse number 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You know what that means? There's a way to use portions of the Scripture in an unbiblical way. And I started the message with an example of that. 
It is possible to use God's law in an unlawful way. And, and here's how. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person. In other words, the Old Testament law is not for a saved person that is received as a gift, the righteousness of Christ. But for, and then Paul gets into six different general descriptions, and then he'll go into the five of the Ten Commandments where people violated the Scripture. Uh, the law is made for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, and now he gets to those who violate the Ten Commandments. For murderers or fathers and murderers or mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers. Now, by the way, let's stop there for just a moment. Kidnappers. 19th century and 18th century American slavery was rooted in a violation of that text. You will hear, and it is correct, that some preachers in the South used the Bible to justify slavery. That was an evil and a wickedness that still injures the body of Christ today. I have to tell you, I have, a, and this is going to be a big shock to those of you who know Southern Baptist history, but I have a very, very hard time believing that even preachers who use the Bible to justify slavery made it to heaven. I just can't buy it. And reformers who urge the killing of Jews and Muslims and others, there's a big question mark on them as well because of this text. I don't know, but ladies and gentlemen, the Bible cannot be used to justify such evil. They were neglecting this text. In fact, they were neglecting the Old Testament that commanded capital punishment to those who kidnapped others. And that is what 18th and 19th century American slavery and European slavery was rooted in. Well, let's move on. For liars, that violates the commandments. Perjurers. And if there's anything, other thing, that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel. And so Paul sees a misuse of the Scripture here, and he gets intense about it and communicates. I had the opportunity to baptize at the Jordan River there. It's a wonderful experience. And the Jordan River is loaded with fish. They kept nibbling at my feet the entire time. See, I'm sweet and delicious, and they, they knew it. But I had the opportunity to baptize five of our people. Uh, we took about 14 there from Beach Haven and uh, was able to uh, uh, baptize there. Now, Todd Houston told me, he said, you need to know after we're done baptizing our own folks, there are going to be people come up that we don't know that want us to baptize them. And he told me how he handled that. He said, usually I don't. I tell them I've gone through extensive conversations with these I've baptized, and um, I, I just can't do that. Well, I was a little more optimistic than that, but uh, I, I took his counsel. Right after I'd baptized, I... Um, I uh, talked to uh, one young lady who came up to me from California and asked me if I would baptize her. And I said, well, you need to understand, I've talked to each of these at some time or another extensively to make sure they know Christ as Savior and they've given themselves to Him. So let's talk just a little bit here. And I began to ask her about her conversion experience. And she had no idea what I was talking about. She had no idea of the relationship between the death and resurrection of Christ and baptism, which is out of Romans 6. And uh, uh, I asked her, I said, well, just imagine this. Let's imagine that the worst thing in the world were to happen today and you were to die and you were to stand before God today. And he was to say, um, I was expecting you. I called her name and said, he, I was expecting you. Why should I let you into my heaven? 
And ladies and gentlemen, she was thoroughly clueless. She'd grown up in a religious denomination. But she said, would it be enough if I said he was my friend? I said, no. That's a good thing, but it might be a good starting point. Um, She said, well, I feel him. I said, well, tell me what you think about the death and resurrection of Christ. See, that's the beginning point. And here's the sad thing. I told her, listen, I'm just not going to be able to do it. Uh, I don't baptize anyone unless they've got a strong memory of a conversion experience when they came to Christ. And and I wouldn't want to mislead you by doing this. So I hate to say no, because you're as sweet as you can be. But uh, here's my number. And here's my email address. I want you to contact me, and I want you to begin as quickly as you can to read through the Gospel of John, especially chapter 3. And when you get ready, I can give you a little guidance later, but let's be in communication and contact, and I'll be glad to shepherd you to that point. We walked away, and she seemed to be some disappointed but somewhat satisfied, and uh, Todd told me, you need to understand, she'll be here for the next number of minutes, and somebody, without asking about her conversion experience, will baptize her. They'll do it. I don't know if that happened or not, but there was absolutely no understanding of the relationship between baptism and a personal conversion experience. Ladies and gentlemen, there's got to be a little bit of no in us to accurately guide people. The stakes are high. I mean, it's God or Satan, it's heaven or hell, it's righteousness or evil. There's no in-between with these big issues, none whatsoever. And quite frankly, we've got to be faithful not only to the Lord, but also to the eternal interest of other people's souls. It's appointed unto man once to die, but after this comes the what? The judgment, Hebrews 9.27. So every man and every woman will stand before God at some point and give an account, and they've got to be ready, and dear God help me if I'm unfaithful and I mislead them and it meets them finally at the judgment bar of God, I can't do that. And I won't. Misuse of Scripture. A misuse of Scripture. Now the way to apply this is when we crank back up, when school gets back in in August, to be in discipleship training on Sunday and Wednesday nights. Start new Sunday school classes. Take and review sermon notes. Have family devotions in June 25th through 28th. Pick up a Bible from Lifeway and give it away to someone who needs it. But there's a second time to go negative, and that is when there's a misunderstanding of salvation. Now, I can hear somebody say, oh, my goodness, we are talking about salvation again? May I say to you two things? If you're tired of hearing about salvation, two things. You need to be as tired of salvation as your body is your circulatory system that carries blood through your body. The doctrine of salvation covers Genesis to Revelation just like your circulatory system covers and permeates your body. And we simply can't be faithful unless we reflect on it. Now, I hope as a preacher not to say the same thing over and over again on Sundays about this, and that's why we look at different texts as we do. But we've got to be faithful. And you need to know, if you don't like the doctrine of salvation, you really probably need to find a different religion. Because, uh, frankly, Christianity is chalked through full of the totality and the uh, comprehensive nature of salvation in the Bible. Salvation of the soul. Salvation of the spirit. Salvation of the mind. Salvation of the body. Salvation of the earth. Salvation of the cosmos. Salvation of all that will bow before Jesus Christ and claim Him as King and Lord. 
It is a wonderful, wonderful thing. When there's a misunderstanding of salvation, it's time to go negative. Now, Paul was terribly clear about this in verses 12 through 17. And I would like to describe his view of salvation using some prepositions. Uh, There was salvation, salvation in verse number 12. Look, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who's enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry. That's salvation to service. True salvation will lead people to serve Christ. A false approach to salvation will lead people to be merely spectators. And then verse number 13, there's salvation from. Although I was formerly, can you believe this about Paul? A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent or violently angry man. Paul was saved from sin. A real, a real experience of salvation will break the chains of sin and compel the converted person to continue to pursue holiness through all his or her ups and downs. And, and then there's salvation by in verse 14. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and, faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't save us because we're good. God saves us because he's good. And it's not that we've got anything desirable in us. We don't. We're, we're corpses. Rigor mortis is set in the soul. It's that there is everything desirable in him. And so we're saved by grace. Verse 15, we're saved in sincerity. Uh, this is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the chief. Of course, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. We think he's the chief of saints. And he's the chief of saints because he felt he was the chief of sinners. But he's absolutely certain that the purpose Jesus Christ came for was to save sinners. And you know what you could do? You could look at verse 15. If you're under a burden of guilt today, you're not certain that heaven is your home. You're not certain that Christ is your Savior and Lord. You know what you can do? With assurance, you can insert your name into verse 15. And let me use mine in verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save David. He came to save Bob. He came to save Rachel. He did. He came to save Martha. This is personal. It's for you. And so he's got a clear understanding of salvation. Then it's for something in verse 16. It's for others. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a prototakos, a, a prototype of those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And the whole point is, is that if Paul can save, excuse me, if Jesus can save Paul, he can save you. If Paul's sins can be cleansed, yours can as well. If Paul's guilt could be eliminated, so can yours. Because he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Let me tell you something. Before Paul met Jesus, he was a mess and proud of it. And he was sure he was right. And I want to tell you, there's nobody here in this congregation today that was as bad as the Apostle Paul before he met Christ. And God wants to save you. He loves you and slaughtered his son to make this happen. So I want you to think about something. After I preach this message, we're going to sing a song and we're going to ask you to give your heart and life to Christ. And our staff will be here to help you. Uh, We want you to do that now. And more than anything, God wants you to do it now. And and so that was um, uh, salvation uh, for uh, others. And then verse 17, towards Christ. Now to the King eternal, 
immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever. Amen. And so there is a burst, a firework explosion of praise to the name of Jesus Christ. And real conversion ought to end up in that kind of praise, worship, and thanksgiving to God. That's what we have here in uh, salvation. Paul then does plant some cucumbers, onions, and tomatoes in the garden of Timothy's in the Ephesian soul with this. Well, what do I do if there's a misunderstanding of salvation? Well, just simply ask this question. If you come across that, ask, now just exactly explain to me, how does this square with 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17? What? Yeah, you just went Bible on them. The Bible is the only, listen, the Bible is the only certain message we have on salvation and getting to heaven. There is none other. God has provided no other certain word. But real quickly, there's a third time when Paul went negative and when we need to as well. And that is with misleading the saints. Now he's assuming a spiritual warfare. Not, Not a political or geopolitical or military warfare. We wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and forces of darkness in, in high places. We're, we, we've, got a, we've got a battle with evil forces wrapped up in the demonic kingdom. And, and then the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. And so when we talk about a fight of faith, it's, it's very appropriate to say fight of faith, as if we're putting it in quotes. And, and that's the appropriate way to think about this. When we talk about our weapons, it's appropriate to put it into quotes like this. And so we're not talking about an actual geopolitical warfare between nations or peoples. We don't use the instruments of government in order to promote our faith. That's not what we do. We don't believe that. We, we, we use love and we use prayer. We use service. We use witness. We use scripture. We use worship. We use church. Those are our weapons. Okay, And that's what we're talking about here. And so Paul is assuming here that particular warfare. And so he went to war here in verses 18 through 20 and urges Timothy to join him. And he says misleading happens under three conditions. He said, when we fail to wage, verse 18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. People that are not willing to pull weeds or kill bugs are going to find themselves being misled. And then, not only that, when we fail to wash. He talked about Timothy having a faith and a good conscience. If there's not frequent confession of sin and returning to God, we will slip away. We've got to consciously, intentionally, frequently watch our hearts and souls and minds or we will be misled. And then when there's a failure to watch. Now look how bad it can get. He said, concerning the faith, some have suffered shipwreck. What what a dramatic image. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan or excommunicated from the church, which uh, comes from 1 Corinthians 5, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so teaching false doctrine was blasphemy against God And Hymenaeus and Alexander were not watching themselves for that. Now, you may admit, and you may be a lot like me, uh, you you may say, you know, I'm a wimp. There's no way I could ever engage in this. There is no way I could ever challenge someone 
when I think that biblically they, they've drifted off into error. Well, again, you need to have a Christ-like spirit. You need to be sweet and kind. never need to be the kind of person that uh, has the equivalent of an atomic bomb for a personality. Not that at all. But there are about four questions you can ask. Four questions you can ask when you're dealing with these things, and this is what I do. Number one, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Usually, people do not think very carefully, especially in this day, about what they say. They read something on Twitter, and that's enough for them. Or they heard something, and they're not careful to think through it and examine it and all. And so, ask the question, what do you mean by that? Second, where did you get that from? What's your source? I'm kind of curious. Number, number three, how do you know that source is reliable? And then number four, and usually I've only gotten to number four just a handful of times through these years, but once in a while you may get there. Let's just imagine that you're wrong. Would you want to know it? Those four simple questions are a Christ-like way to help people go from error to truth. And ladies and gentlemen, you've got to remember, the stakes are very high, incredibly high. God cares for the soul. The soul is eternal. We will live somewhere forever. And so there are occasions when it's appropriate to go negative, when there is a misuse of Scripture, a misunderstanding of salvation, and misleading the saints. And that's what Paul did here in this text. Let me ask you, <coughs> excuse me, it's my wife's shirt that's making me cough. Anyway, <coughs> she has on it, by the way, shalom, y'all. That's, uh, yeah, I'm teasing. <coughs> but let, let me challenge you here. Have you ever come to the point where you've had a memorable and definitive conversion experience? Are you certain that you have come to Jesus? The stakes are high, and that's why we preach and teach this way. Can you point to a time in your life where you gave your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Oh, of course not. I always believed in Jesus. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. The, the devil will tell you that. No, you didn't. You need to come to a point where you acknowledge that you're guilty before God, and Christ's death and resurrection is the only way to find relief before God. And then in brokenness and humility, come to God, confessing sin and embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. Oh, I did that. I don't remember it. Hey, how would my wife feel if I told you, yeah, I've been married, but I remember nothing about it? Of course, after my comment, who knows what's going to happen. We must have a definitive and memorable conversion experience. And it makes no sense to be fuzzy on that. Listen, if you're fuzzy on that, don't be arrogant. Get it settled today. And I want to tell you, Jesus is big enough to make it happen right now. He is. Let's pray together.